You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. In this first week of February, there is a mood of cautious optimism after three years of Hong Kong being isolated from mainland China and from the rest of the world. It's a week where the last remaining border crossings from the mainland into Hong Kong were opened, and vaccine requirements for international arrivals were dropped. There will be no isolation, no quarantine, and no restriction on experiencing our great wine and dine scenes, on doing business, on joining events and outings, on doing sports, on enjoying the hustle and bustle of Asia's world city. This comes after the Hong Kong government made world headlines with its offer to give away more than 700,000 airline tickets to kickstart tourism. This, ladies and gentlemen, is probably the world's biggest welcome ever. And the Hong Kong Tourism Board started giving away one million spending vouchers to tourists who have started arriving here, each worth 100 Hong Kong dollars or 12 US dollars. And for those of us living here, whether you were raised in Hong Kong like me, or whether you flew here for work, school, love or money, we're looking at Hong Kong and asking, can it get back its title of Asia's world city? And will it ever return to a time when more than 65 million visitors arrived in one year? More importantly, how has this changed the people who live and work here? Hello and welcome back to the Inside China podcast. I'm science reporter Holly Chick, and right now, I'm going to take you from the 18th floor newsroom of the South China Morning Post down to the street level in Causeway Bay. I'm taking you through the ground floor of Times Square. Well, the other one, not the one in Manhattan. This part of Causeway Bay has a reputation for being the most expensive retail precinct in the world. We're walking past boutique stores selling Gucci, Dior, Chanel, Boutique Veneta, and Tommy Hilfiger. And it's looking pretty much the same as it has for the last three years. Very, very quiet. There's some subtle changes you can notice. There are small groups of shoppers, and they're mostly from mainland China, speaking in Mandarin. And when we walk out on the street, you can see a change in the stores and what's being sold. There's a new department store called Mask X, dedicated just to selling masks on one corner. And there's another smaller boutique store selling only masks over where the Uber drivers pick up passengers. And as you walk along Matheson Street, there's a line of designer watch shops all with large signs advertising Rolex, Patel Philippe, and Omega. Inside, smartly dressed store attendants stand, arms folded, waiting for the customers to come. 
But if you know where to look on the street, or indeed, you remember what used to be here, you can see some of what's changed. Across the road from the taxi stand is what used to be Cafe Corridor, one of the first specialty coffee shops in Hong Kong. It opened 22 years ago and was respected as not just shaping coffee culture here, but also training a generation of baristas. But that's just outside our newsroom. On scmp.com and on our YouTube channel, you can read and watch the stories of the businesses that haven't been able to survive these past three years. In February last year, it was estimated nearly one-third of Hong Kong's restaurants, nearly 5,000 of them, were considering shutting down for months as a result of the government's zero-COVID controls. The Hong Kong Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades estimated more than 300 had closed for good. But this podcast is an requiem for closed bars and restaurants. You're going to hear from my colleagues on the City Desk and Culture Desk who have been observing and reporting on the changes to Hong Kong's people, the hit to Hong Kong's economy and the changes forced on its dining culture these past three years. And they've got a few ideas about how this will shape our future too. Lisa Kemp is a senior reporter with our Culture Desk. Welcome back. Nice to be back, Holly. Hong Kong has always been known as a place for overseas chefs to come here and take on top-level dining concepts. Can Hong Kong get back its appeal for that? I don't think we ever truly lost that sheen. I think during the last three years, we have still been able to get a lot of talented chefs to come in given that they're willing to go through the quarantine. And I spoke to quite a few that did. And even the ones who had contracts or obligations before the pandemic or travel restrictions, a lot of them were willing to do a lot of things remote or work with their team as much as possible before they can get boots on ground. I think a famous example of that would be Hansik Gu, a Korean restaurant by Chef Mingu in Korea. And while he was obligated to come back quite often for new menus. Of course, he obviously couldn't do that as nimbly as he did before. He did work with his team or his chef here to talk about like different menus and all that. They did have to rely a bit more on their sous chef that's currently stationed here. Um, another one is Fuko from Celebrity Cuisine. Um, he, being in Hong Kong, actually had obligations in Taiwan. And he told me he went to Taiwan seven times during the last three years and went through quarantine on both sides. So I don't think we actually lost that sheen. These chefs keep coming, but albeit in a more staggered way. But I think they'll keep continuing to come back and like show us what they've got. Closing versus openings. Was Hong Kong doing okay? I think in Hong Kong... Reportedly, we lost a lot of restaurants. Like none, there is no denying that. 
But I think compared to a lot of other cities, we had a lot of openings. I mean, as the person who wrote the openings and closings for the last three years in Hong Kong for SCMP, for only for one month had to really say, look, there's no openings. That was April 2020. We actually just wrote a listicle about like, you know, here are the restaurants you didn't know that does delivery now. And I think only twice did I ever write, here are sadly the restaurants that we will miss that are closing this month. The rest of it, we had like upwards of teens and sometimes 20 new restaurants opening every month. Now, this might seem kind of a little bit strange, but because of Hong Kong's economy is more or less dominated by developers. And a lot of the restaurants are housed in these huge malls. So whenever they go, Sometimes the developers themselves get their own team to take up the mantle just to use up the real estate. So I'm not saying that all these new openings are like the best restaurants ever. We lost some fantastic restaurants in Hong Kong. But the the activity just really didn't stop. What about the local chefs? Was there much chance for them to shine? Actually, there was actually a huge shuffle within the industry. So many chefs uh, was coming in and out of their restaurants. With so many new openings, there were still a lot of vacancies to fill. And while, like, you know, the big name ones or some of the ones that weren't quite happy where they were, were able to move on to greener pastures, there were some vacancies left opened. And I've seen a lot of sous chefs, talented sous chefs. The first one that comes to mind was the one that used to be the sous chef of Pierre William. And he went to become executive chef at Whisk. So, you know, Hong Kong actually had the chance to take advantage of this little slump and have some really homegrown talent come out. Well, Hong Kong's infamously high rent has long been a major worry for restaurants and businesses here. And SEMP has reported on how many landlords were refusing to give any discount at all to restaurants and bars who weren't allowed to legally open. How has that changed the Hong Kong F&B landscape? I think it really depends. Like, you know, one, we could just put developers into a big blanket, right? But there are certain developers who would stand by their price. Some would do it for their favorite dining groups or their bigger clients. And there were some that were willing to negotiate. I actually interviewed the founder and CEO of Parada Group. And they have like, you know, a good several dozen of restaurants under their belt. And they were telling me that they were actively going in to negotiate rent because they know that they having a reputation for good restaurants and good food that attracts the crowds, that they could actually even change the landscape of the real estate that pretty much died during the pandemic. So they were, he was telling me, because I negotiate with my landlords all the time. And good for them, right? What better time than now? And I think there were some, like I said, if you walk across some parts of Soho right now, you can tell why some of them, which parts, which landlords were not willing to negotiate rent. And now I'm seeing that they're actually tearing those old buildings down and rebuilding them. You can see the reason why they won't negotiate. Well, let's say you mentioned that restaurants were doing deliveries and like the rest of the world, food delivery in Hong Kong became very popular during the pandemic. But now that restaurants and bars are fully operating again, will companies such as Food Panda and Deliveroo still attract a lot of customers? I think there will be a correction, um, like you see with at the moment with um, Netflix and Amazon stock prices, right, that shot up during the pandemic. Like, you know, the market has changed again. But then at the same time, I think we've grown accustomed to it. The alcohol that's deliverable birthday cakes that's deliverable, that we are so used to that convenient, I don't think we anyone would be able to wean themselves off of that right now. 
Throughout the pandemic, Hong Kong has seen so many COVID restrictions on the food industry. Well, just to name a few, there were bans on dining in restaurants from 6 p.m. There were limits to how many people were allowed per table. And also there were bans on bars and live venues. As a result of these restrictions, what kind of changes have you observed among Hong Kongers? I think I have to advocate that the hardest hits were the bars and live venues. They were under the strictest restrictions for the longest time. And I think the biggest change is that people have gotten used to the habit of drinking at home now. Nothing will replace going out and meeting friends at bars and trying exciting cocktails. Like, it's not in just Hong Kongers' DNA. I think that's everybody's dining DNA that they would want to go out with their friends. But we're so used to, like I just mentioned before, like delivery alcohol, that people might be more open to pre-gaming at a friend's house or post-gaming at a friend's house before and afterwards. As for the dining restrictions before 6 p.m., I think that just went right back. It was basically just like, you know, you plug a hole in the sink and it just fills right back up. And now that the travel restrictions are lifted, Hong Kongers are going abroad again. Do you think they will continue to spend locally? And what about the experts who have been dining here previously? Are they going to return? Hong Kongers, we love to eat, but it is true now that like, you know, we don't have a lot of quarantine measures and a lot of other countries such as Japan and Thailand, our favorite place. A lot of them have already told me that like, you know, oh, we'll be saving to go overseas. And like, you know, we might not be spending just as much in Hong Kong, but damn, we were good at filling that void. And expats returning, I think we do have a lot that we've lost For example, a lot of SMCG companies have relocated their headquarters, Asia headquarters outside of Hong Kong now, and it's going to be hard for us to get them back. But Hong Kong is a financial hub. And from what I know is that for the C-suiters and the higher ups, let's say, a lot of them didn't relocate per se. A lot of them were given temporary residence in Singapore or told that they could work from home in either their home city or somewhere in London or Amsterdam. But they are itching to come back. It's not like, you know, of course, the dining scene and everything's fun in Hong Kong. But I think a lot of it's because of tax. They have a huge tax savings when they work out from Hong Kong. Speaking of tax, there's no tax on wine, is there, in Hong Kong? Um, Yeah, red and white wine, tax-free. That's why we've got such an abundant selection here. Apart from a joy for anyone that's a foodie or a gourmand, the food cost is usually, for fine dining, sometimes up to 90% of the price. So they make a lot of the money through wine. And I got to say, like, you know, it is because of this that the expats have the spending power and the culture, really, to order a bottle of wine during dinner or two or three or four. And, you know, once we get these guys back, you know, hopefully it would reinvigorate even more, you know, fine dining restaurants. At the start of the pandemic, many people in America, the UK and Australia became weirdly fascinated with bread baking and sourdough in particular. But here in Hong Kong, our kitchens are not that big and many of us don't have ovens to bake anything. Well, instead, a lot of Hong Kongers relied on takeout food. And there was one particular takeout dish that became really popular and it's called the two-dish rice, or we say in Cantonese, leung song fan. Can you tell us more about that? I mean, in Hong Kong or Cantonese saying, there is one that says like a good standard meal is samsung yatong, which means three dishes and one soup. So that's like a really good hearty meal for a family. 
and to dish rice or long song fan is actually very good for just yourself. Now, this is kind of like a staple. The popularity arising is a sign of economic hardship. I can't deny that. I spoke to Billy, the CEO of Feeding Hong Kong. He gave me a really stark realization of just how hard hit the people living under the poverty line is in Hong Kong. Not only is like you know, as you just mentioned before, um, you know, oh, we've got to start baking our own bread, like you know, to save some money, or um, we've got to cook more at home. A lot of people who live in you know subdivided flats or cage livings don't have that option. That's why the energy crisis at the moment and the impending energy rates hike that's coming this summer of 45% is really, really going to hurt them because he was telling me that a lot of these rooms or the cage houses don't have ventilation. They need to keep their AC on if they need to do any kind of cooking. So the two dish rice comes to the rescue. So it comes with two dishes. You know what are usually the picks and how much does it cost? Um, it's usually something quite saucy, as it's like easily heated. If it's something like dry, like a fried dish, it would get soggy really soon. There is sometimes some nice little fried dishes, but usually it's something quite saucy, like sweet and sour pork or a lot of stews that can go with the rice really well. And two dish rice is very reflective of which area you live in. If you get it from new territories, I think you could get away with ones that are between twenty and thirty-five. But in Wan Chai, they could go up to sixty. It really depends. So it ranges from three to around seven US dollars. Yeah, just for a meal. Well, finally, let's just talk about a place that is very famous in Hong Kong, and it appears on almost every travel blog about Hong Kong. And this restaurant is a cha chan tang that's called the Australian Dairy Company. It's a traditional Hong Kong cafe, and Lisa, we both know part of that tradition is the cranky service with staff hurrying people to finish their meals. Given we have had zero tourism for the past three years, a lot of locals were going to these places, and smaller crowds meant you could actually take your time, sip your milk tea, and enjoy a pineapple bun. Do you think that attitude will change? I think they've changed in their version of change. There's a confluence of a few influences here, right? Hong Kong has had somewhat of a labor shortage, especially in the service industry, due to a lot of migration outside of Hong Kong. And but then at the same time, I've actually read reports where older staff has been recalled back to come and work and for higher pay. I think the edge of their crankiness is kind of like you know tweaked because of that. I think they're just a little bit happier. But then their idea of giving you good service is their version of good. Service, so they're still cranky in a way, but they're nicer about it somehow. Um, so you know, in my experience, it's like you know, hey lady, you better leave soon, rather than hey, are you leaving soon? So you know, it's like you know, a little bit more of their version of good manners. I think it's still interesting to watch, and it's still worth going. With Hong Kong finally reopening. What kind of energy are you seeing in the food trend? What are the latest in the industry? Well, I've received a lot of press releases about collaboration, four hands, six hands dinner, which means um, a lot of chefs are coming to visit their friends. Our homegrown chefs are actually collaborating a lot with their contemporaries from overseas. Now, that means like you know our own chefs are learning something new for us, which is great. But also, this is a good time for other chefs to come Hong Kong and test the waters, which means more exciting restaurants might be opening on the horizon. 
Lisa Kam, it's great talking to you. As always, we're going to follow your reports on scmp.com. Great talking to you guys. Denise Sung is a news editor with our City Desk, and she's been following the economic impact on Hong Kong of the zero COVID policies. In fact, she was last on this podcast in March of 2020, talking about the economic status of Hong Kong. And I know 2020 is such a long time ago. Denise, great to have you back in the studio. Thank you, Holly. Yes, it's a long time. Denise, can you give us an overview of Hong Kong's economy right now? If you were a doctor, what would be your prognosis? This is an interesting question. I think I myself is a patient as a Hong Kong resident. (laughs) Well, um, after three years in pandemic, I think Hong Kong now is in one of the bottoms in history. And the economic outlook is a bit better now, but then it still has a lot to do to get back its feet. Say 2022, we had all these figures, macroeconomic figures, showing that Hong Kong was in recession. And that is the third in four years. So you can tell how bad our situation is. Well, Denise, where do you think has been the biggest reputation damage to Hong Kong? Has it been its role as an aviation hub, the gateway to Asia, or has it been the exodus of bankers and its role as the global financial center? I'm afraid all these are correct. For aviation, it's really bad because Hong Kong has been in an isolation situation for three years. And during these three years, there was no tourism, which is the appeal industry in Hong Kong. And then all the planes were grounded, basically. And then Cathay Pacific Airways, which is Hong Kong's flagship airlines, suffered a lot. At one stage, it needed a government bailout, and that cost 39 billion Hong Kong dollars. It's not a small amount. So now we try to get things back on track. So that's why the first thing is to get aviation up again. Otherwise, how can travelers come to Hong Kong or how can Hong Kong people travel overseas, right? So this is a a key thing that we need to do. The second thing is about tourism. It's a horrible figure to show last year. In 2022, we had only less than 1% of the 55.9 million people who came in 2019. So basically, we suddenly we have to get everything back on track in one go. So that's why the most damaging thing on tourism and aviation have to be resuscitated. So when will the Hong Kong airport fully recover? I think it will take at least 18 months. Because right now, the latest figures we got is Cathay Pacific is running at 40% of its pre-pandemic capacity. But look elsewhere, in Singapore, for example. The Singapore Airlines is running at 80% during the same period. So you can see the the differences, right? And then down to the road, Cathay Pacific wants to raise the capacity to 70% sometime this year. But then for the full capacity restoration, it will be 2024. But in Singapore, they're talking about full capacity this year. So that means, you know, there's still a long way to go. And in the business world, what are your contacts telling you about Hong Kong? Is the outlook as rosy as John Lee makes it seem to be, announcing what he called the world's biggest welcome? 
Well, I think everyone wants Hong Kong to come back to life as soon as possible. And I really, myself, you know, as a Hong Kong resident, I hope the economy, the city will come back as dynamic as it was. It really depends on how, what measures and how the efforts will be. I think now the biggest issue is labor problem. Where do you find people? Now, all the restrictions on travel, COVID, social, or whatever expats, they're all gone. But every industry needs people. And according to John Lee himself, 140,000 people left Hong Kong permanently. So there's a huge gap we need to fill first. Without people, we can do nothing. So my friends, you know, in F&B, retail, banking, uh, restaurants, anywhere, especially hotels, they need people. And then they don't know where to find these people, the right people especially. So I think the first thing is to fill that labour gap. So Denise, what's your reaction to the Hello Hong Kong tourism campaign? I'm very positive about this because that is the only hope for a turnaround in Hong Kong's tourism. Especially that initiative by the government through the Hong Kong Airport Authority to give away 500,000 air tickets. This will bring at least 500,000 people to Hong Kong, right? That's a lot of people. And then the related spending by these people, like in hotel, shopping, uh, restaurants, they all will benefit the economy. So now this is just a matter of how to give away these tickets and who the government is targeting on. Because we need many travelers to come to Hong Kong to see the new things. And uh, once they come over, I'm sure they will have a new experience. Because the most hilarious things we have seen in Hong Kong in the past three years is we have many new features, new attractions that were completed. And then no tourists saw it. (laughs) So that's the chance that they can come over now. For example, the new Palace Museum. It's got all this cultural relic from Beijing, exclusive to Hong Kong sometimes. And then the M Plus Museum. Uh, So this West Kowloon Cultural Precinct is very... um, Trendy, I would say, is a trend-setting place. For those theme parks like Ocean Park, it was revamped. And then Disneyland Resort got a new castle, much bigger one, more fancy. And even the frozen new feature will come on stream. And then if you want to go to the peak, there's a peak trend, and they were all renovated. If you want to take this iconic cable car, it is a one that you can challenge yourself that is totally transparent. And then you will find yourself, you know, up in the air from Tongchong to the Ongping Big Buddha. So all these new things, you know, are in place. What we need is tourists. Well, when we're still looking forward to the timeline of when the air tickets are going to be given out, in that video that the Hong Kong government made to lure back tourists, we saw no one wearing masks on the streets. But actually, it's not quite the case in Hong Kong now. I would like to remind all the visitors, that they still have to put on masks in Hong Kong, I'm afraid. Because of the existing requirement, you can take it as self-protection, but it's a rule anyhow. If you don't wear it in public areas, especially public transport, you will be um, fined by 5,000 Hong Kong dollars. But then there's good news. Johnny, our chief executive, promised to review this mandate in the first quarter. That means there's a chance that it will be dropped. 
Denise, you've been working in Hong Kong newsrooms long enough to remember the outbreak of SARS and how it affected the Hong Kong economy. Is it possible to contrast how the city recovered in 2004 to the past three years of isolations and restrictions? There is a huge difference between these two recessions. Well, the first, I would say, during SARS, we had three months lockdown, basically. That epidemic passed to Hong Kong for three months, basically. And then suddenly there was a deep V rebound in the economy because of China's policy, very supportive on Hong Kong. By opening the floodgates, you know, of allowing mainland people to come to visit Hong Kong, that's why you've seen millions or tens of millions of mainland people visiting Hong Kong and giving a huge boost to the tourism, right? That's why the economy came back very fast. But this time we are talking about three years of lockdown. It's not easy. And... Um, I think this time it will be far more challenging to get recovered. Denise, I know that you are very busy covering the way forward for Hong Kong, the border reopening with China and the rest of the world, and also tourism recovery. Thank you very much. We'll follow your reports on scmp.com. Thank you, Holly. The story just begins. I want you to hear some more detail about what made Hong Kong just a little bit different from elsewhere experiencing this pandemic. In the US, Europe and Australia, the issue of vaccinations became a source of conspiracy theories, protests and anti-government sentiment. But for us, the situation was a little bit more complicated and it contributed to Hong Kong changing from one of the safest places in the world for two years as different waves of COVID spread about the globe to having the highest death rate in the world in February and March last year. Nearly 10,000 people, mostly people over 65, died when the Omicron wave arrived in Hong Kong, and nearly all of them were unvaccinated. But the reasons for why they died are nearly as complex as the political situation we witnessed in 2019. And that's why we need to hear from Jeffy Lam. Jeffy Lam leads the political reporting team on the City Desk here at the South China Morning Post and is the co-author of the book Rebel City, Hong Kong's Year of Fire and Water. Jeffy, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Jeffy, can you take us back to the end of 2019? How did COVID affect the protests? Right, so 2019 protests erupted in around June. From then, we have seen an unprecedented scale of protests happening in Hong Kong, like mass protests every weekend, tear gas, and people gathering on the streets and inside the malls. But then, like, the pandemic erupted in December and or early 2020, and it's actually one of the key factors which kind of bring down the protest. So the pandemic came at a time when the society is heavily divided, a significant portion of people having a lack of trust towards the government. And so we have this divide, the so-called yellow and blue divide, where the yellow came sympathize with the protest, while the blue came as supporting the government. But it's not as simple as that, like, as in the yellow camp, we're against the vaccinations while the blue camp supporting. It's not as simple as that. Well, just to recap here, the first vaccine announced by the Hong Kong government was the Sinovac shot, and that was before the third phase clinical trials results were out. 
there are some people in the so-called yellow camp. They might be more skeptical to the Sinovac vaccines, especially when they're unhappy with the government. But most of the key officials decided to take Sinovac as one of their publicity drive. But there's more into it, like people decided to give it some time to give away because there are some media reports on the side effects brought by the vaccines or the death cases. And so they decided to wait for a while. We've done a lot of reporting about how elderly people in mainland China were very hesitant to get vaccinated. Were the concerns of elderly people in Hong Kong similar? Yeah, indeed. As you can see, like even the vaccination rate for the elderly people in Hong Kong, it remained quite low compared to the overall vaccination rate in Hong Kong. And mostly they are concerned with the side effects, especially those who have chronic illnesses. Quite a lot of elderly people chose the Sinovac vaccines. Uh, we talked to some of them. Some of them pick it because they trust the vaccine. They trust the mainland-made vaccines. But there are also a significant portion of them telling us that they chose it because it's weaker. They believe after getting jabbed, there won't be a very strong side effects. And that's why they thought it's safer for them. But it wasn't just elderly people who didn't want to get the vaccine, was it? The Pfizer-BioNTech shot was approved for use in Hong Kong in January 2021. But the uptake was very slow because at the time it seemed there were very few cases here. Jeffy, can you remind us of the attempts in the society to get people vaccinated? Yeah, back then the government has introduced a number of incentives to motivate people to get a jab and also encourage the a commercial sector to roll out similar incentives. So there was at the time when a company uh, launched a lottery, those who get jab, they can enter the lottery to win a two-bedroom flat. And later, the government also decided to introduce what we call the vaccine pass, which actually limit people mobility, like you have to get jab in order to enter restaurants or other different places. And that's when the vaccination rate in Hong Kong really pick up because like basically people need to dine in. <laughs> it was called the no jab, no dim sum rule, wasn't it? Yeah. So like after the government introduced the vaccine pass, basically you have to scan a QR code before entering the restaurant. So only those who are jab are allowed to dine in, in Hong Kong and to enter bars. And later, subsequently, the government also expand the use of vaccine pass, like setting a vaccination rate as a requirement for schools to resume in-person classes or like only vaccinated children are allowed to take part in extracurriculum activities at schools. And so that's when we can see like the vaccination rate in Hong Kong started to pick up. And according to some survey conducted by universities, during the fifth wave last year, which is like early 2022, most of the people polled in the survey said they get jabbed because they want to meet workplace vaccination requirement, which is almost 60% of them. And it came even before to ensure personal health. So it's a very interesting phenomenon in Hong Kong. Like you get jabbed not mainly because to protect your personal health, but to meet your workplace vaccination requirement. Yeah, that's very Hong Kong. Work comes before our personal health. <laughs> right, because you can't enter a restaurant if you're not jabbed. It's also make it very difficult for people who need to work, right? Just make their life more difficult with the vaccine pass. But there were still people who refused to get vaccinated after having to use the Leave Home Safe app. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, there were indeed people who insisted not to get jab. Most of them have health concerns, like they were having chronic illnesses and they don't want to take the risk. Actually, a friend of mine is getting married this year and they decided to get married at her fiancé's home because 
both her dad and mom weren't vaccinated. Like one of them had chronic illnesses and the other also had health concerns. And so like with the vaccine pass, they can't get married in any restaurants or hotel or other public premises because everywhere they check also require vaccine pass. And so that's the only way for her parents to witness the ceremony. But then now the government lift the vaccine pass, right? They still decided to get married there because they also have concerns because her parents are unvaccinated. So I think like that's, that case is quite extreme to me. Well, this is February 2023 and on the streets of Hong Kong, people are still masked up. And they actually started wearing a mask before it was mandatory. Why was that? Hong Kongers are quite well trained to it because of their experience of SARS back in 2003. So they know what to do. Like when there were news that there were a coronavirus in Wuhan, I think before Hong Kong record the first cases, people already start wearing masks on the streets. They know like they should rub their hands with sanitizers, put on masks to protect themselves. But then like three years after the pandemic, I guess people are wondering whether that's the way forward when like Places near Hong Kong already lift the mandatory rule or allow people to mask off in open spaces. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about open spaces because actually in indoors places like a restaurant, we take them off. Right. And also like Hong Kong is now trying to attract tourists, right? So how can we convince tourists to come to Hong Kong when they come from a country where... They don't have to wear masks on the streets and now they have to mask on when visiting Hong Kong. So that's why I guess people started to think whether we should keep on the mandatory rule right now. Actually, Hong Kong leader John Lee has said the government will review the mandatory rule in March. So we will see if there may be some sort of relaxation back then. Jeffy, what's your sense of Hong Kong right now? Do you think that businesses and lives are back to normal? Yeah, so I guess we are recovering. Like we can see there are a large group of gatherings during the Lunar New Year. People are dining out in groups again, going on picnics. And you can see like people returning to the streets. And at the same time, they also accept the fact that the pandemic is here to stay for a while. It's also interesting to notice the return of tourists. Like back in November, I was in Disneyland and like it's so quiet and you only need to wait for like 20 minutes for a ride and now like last week when I went there it took like 70 minutes and I can see like mainland tourists are everywhere so I guess people started to come back to Hong Kong things are getting to normal but it might take time for a full recovery. Jeffy Lam thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Thank you for listening. And a reminder, you can catch up on the previous Hong Kong specials in this series in your podcast feed. In our next episode, we're going to focus on one very specific part of Hong Kong's future. How has three years of mandatory masks and homeschooling affected the young people? How has their development been affected? What can parents do? What can schools do? And what can we expect for these children raised in a pandemic in the years to come? That's our next episode of Inside China with me, Holly Chick. Don't forget to get your latest news and analysis at scmp.com. Follow us on Twitter at scmpnews. Bye for now.